Let's continue to worship the Lord by making silence in our souls, in our hearts, and coming before the Father in prayer. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we praise you this morning for the gospel. We thank you that it is powerful. Thank you that it's so powerful that it brings dead people to life spiritually. We thank you that it can bring sight to the blind. It's so powerful that it can com confront those who think they're religious but have not experienced the new birth. Father, we thank you that the gospel has a power to change people's lives regardless of our ability to bring that change. Father, we are amazed that you have chosen us to proclaim such a powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that the proclamation of Christ crucified is the means of bringing new life to us. And not only the means to bring new life to those who don't have life, but the gospel is the power to sustain the life of the church. Father, we thank you that you have called us to the gospel. We thank you that you have set apart, you have set us apart for the gospel. Father, we pray that you would help us see the obligation we have to proclaim the gospel. Father, we pray that you would help us grow in our eagerness to proclaim the gospel and help us put aside every fear that would cause us to be ashamed of the gospel. Father, this morning we pray for our congregation. We pray that we would be a community of people that are transformed by the gospel daily, in our daily walk, in our daily conversations, in our daily decisions, that we would do all of these in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that together as a community, we would display the glory and the power of the gospel through the way we love one another, through the way we care for one another, through the way we seek to do spiritual good to one another. Father, enable us to grow in seeking out for one another, to encourage and correct one another, to carry the burdens of one another. Father, we thank you that you have saved us, and in saving us you have never intended for us to live independent lives, but you called us to live in community. Lord Jesus, we pray that we continue to grow in this life of community. Forgive us, Father, when in our Christian lives we live by the norms of independence and self-sufficiency and privacy, all of which are, are values of this world but not values of your kingdom. Father, we do thank you for the comfort and the assurance of pardon that you give us when we confess our sins. Lord, we need you. Father, we continue to pray for the ongoing needs of our congregation. Father, as we are considering a common direction for the life of our church, we pray what Paul prayed for, for the Christians of Philippi, that we would be like-minded, to have the same love and the same spirit and the same purpose. Father, we also pray as we are seeking for a new associate pastor, I pray that you give us guidance and leadership in this process. Lord, we continue to pray for the members of our congregation who are still disconnected from this body of believers. Lord, wherever they are, we pray that you would prosper them spiritually. And Lord, we pray that if they stop gatherings with, gathering with other believers, that they would find the value, that they would rediscover the value of gathering with the saints on a regular basis. Father, we pray for the churches throughout the world. Lord, we pray for all believers who are gathering on this day to proclaim the cross of Jesus. Lord, we pray that their proclamation would be powerful. Father, we pray especially for churches in Austin. And Lord, especially we want to pray this morning for Hill Country Bible Church Northwest and for its pastor, Tim Hawks. Lord, I pray that they would remain faithful to the gospel in proclaiming it and in seeking out the lost. Father, I pray that you bless them. And Lord, we pray that you bless us this morning, right now, as we are gathered around your word. Father, we also pray for our tithes and offerings. Lord, we bring them to you 
because you have given us so much. Lord, we seek to be generous and joyful as we give, to declare that all our lives, our entire lives depend on you and are owned by you. Father, we pray that you would use these gifts for the spread of the gospel both locally and globally. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Friends, we continue to worship the Lord with our tithes and offerings. And if you're a visitor, this is the time to turn in your guest card. Let's continue to worship the Lord. Amen. Dear friends, we are continuing today in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we will start addressing today the first major point that Jesus developed in the sermon. For those of you who are visiting us this morning, let me give you a, a synopsis of what we've covered so far in the series. So far, we looked at an overview of the sermon two weeks ago. We saw that the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of heaven, and the theme of this series is living on earth the kingdom of heaven. Then last week, we looked at the introduction of the sermon, which included a list of values and a list of, of witnesses of the kingdom. And having covered these introductory matters, Jesus begins now describing what are the demands of the kingdom of heaven. What are the demands of the kingdom of heaven? Now, we should not think about these demands as demands in order to enter heaven, but as demands of those who are already citizens of heaven. We claimed already that in Matthew's gospel, the phrase kingdom of heaven does not refer primarily to heaven, but to the reign of God. So the question here comes, if the reign of God is real in our lives, how is that reign displayed in our daily living? If God reigns truly in our lives, how is that reign visible? More so, what demands does God have upon us as our king? If God is king, what demands does he have upon us? Now, the notion of demands, especially when we think of demands for the Christian life, may sound to some people very legalistic because they say it reminds us of the Old Testament rules and regulations. And they say Christianity is a religion of grace. Well, regardless of what objections one may have, the question I want to pose this morning is this. If God is king over our lives, does he have a demand that we should live in a certain way? This is not about legalism. 
This is about the kingship of God. This question could become legalistic if we would say that living out those demands makes us citizens of God's kingdom, but we're not saying that. No one is saying that. Yet, now that we are citizens of God's kingdom through Christ and through faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, now that we are citizens of that kingdom, is the king entitled to have demands on us? I want you to think carefully about that question. Is the king entitled to have demands on us? Yes or no? Well, the answer is a definitive, undebatable, unquestionable yes. If God is king, he has the right to rule. And if, car if God has the reign of his kingdom over our lives, he does have the right to demand that we should live in a certain way. And this answer will be unpacked in the first major part of the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus will describe to us the demands of the kingdom of heaven upon its citizens. And in order for Jesus to do that, he first begins describing his relationship to the Old Testament. And that's why the title of the sermon this morning is The Kingdom Demands and the Old Testament. I encourage you to open Scripture to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We will read from verse 17 all the way to verse 48. This is the first major part, major point in the Sermon on the Mount. If you are using a pew Bible, you may find our passage on page 833. 833. I'll be reading from the NIV translation this morning. The word of the Lord says the following. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Everyone who breaks one of these one of the least of these commands, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to, to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that he was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for 
marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only those, only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. This was the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the king of our lives. We thank you that your reign and your dominion is, is, is among us. As Father, now as we are listening to the word of the king, we pray that we would listen, that we would be open to hear, and that we would be open to obey. In the name of Jesus, I pray for his glory and honor. Amen. Well, this section of scripture which we read is the major half of the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, two weeks ago we, we gave an overview of this sermon and we said that the introduction comes from chapter 5, verse 3 to verse 16, and then the sermon has a conclusion, verse se uh, chapter 7, verse 13 to 29. And in between these is the body of the sermon which is bracketed by a phrase that comes at the beginning of the body of the sermon and at the end of the body of the sermon. And this phrase is the phrase, the law and the prophets. Look at verse 17 in chapter 5 and look at chapter 7, verse 12. It includes the phrase, the law and the prophets. And this is like an inclusio. It means everything in between is going to be related somehow to the law and the prophets. Friends, everything that Jesus will say on the Sermon on the Mount is connected to what has been revealed by God in the Old Testament. And today we begin looking at the very first point of the sermon, namely the demands of the kingdom and how they relate to the Old Testament. Now as we look at these demands, we notice that Jesus first developed a principle. And that principle is clearly spelled out for us in verses 17 to 20. And that's where we're going to be camping out today for most of our time. And then from verse 21 and on, he illustrates the principle through a number of scenarios. And our hope today is, is to unpack the principle. In the next few weeks, we will be looking at each of these scenarios separately. But today, I want us to look at the principle of how Jesus and the message of the kingdom relates to the Old Testament. And as we will do that, we will be looking at two things. First of all, Jesus is correcting wrong impressions about the kingdom and the Old Testament. Jesus is correcting wrong impressions. And second, 
Jesus is clarifying the standards of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is clarifying the standards of the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at the first principle, the first thing that Jesus does. It's not uncommon today for many Christians to belittle the Old Testament. They think it's unimportant, or at the very least, it's less important than the New Testament, so they say. Uh, such impressions are fed by at least two reasons that I found. There may be others as well. Um, some would say that the Old Testament seems more difficult to read, and especially the sections on the law, then the prophecies, they're difficult to understand, and we struggle to find how they apply for us today. A second reason why people belittle the Old Testament is they, they think that the coming of Jesus in the New Testament seems to make the Old Testament obsolete, since um, our salvation is dependent not on the Old Testament, but on our relationship to Christ. So they say, why bother with the Old Testament? It's difficult. It's hard to get. Why bother with the Old Testament? Well, Jesus seems to be very interested in this question. And he addresses this very issue. And he says the first thing in his sermon, in the ma first major point of the sermon is, addressing this very relationship that he has between his teaching and the Old Testament. Look at verse 17. The very first words of this passage challenge us to make sure that we do not have the wrong impressions about Jesus and his relationship to the Old Testament. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Friends, whatever you may have thought about Jesus, be prepared to think again. Be willing to change your thinking to align itself according to the words of Jesus. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. And he continues in verse 17, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, we don't know if by the time Jesus preached the sermon, people already accused him that he was putting aside the Old Testament. We don't know. It is very possible that Jesus prepared his disciples for the future objections which would undoubtedly be raised against Jesus. After all, if you keep reading through the gospel, we find out that uh, Jesus did all kinds of things that apparently gave the impression that he went against the Old Testament. Uh, he healed on the Sabbath. He ignored the dietary laws. And then even after his death, Jesus' followers insisted that the sacrifices of the Old Testament should no longer be performed. The Apostle Paul in Romans 10, 4, he even says Christ is the end of the law. So the accusation that Jesus came to abolish the law was an issue that had to be addressed, was a real objection whether or not it was there at the time Jesus preached the sermon or it was going to come later. And the response Jesus gives is a very emphatic answer that he came not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets? Before we look at the, at the language of fulfillment, we first need to make sure we understand what the phrase the law and the prophets means. It is an idiom to refer to the entire Old Testament. It's not just referring to the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the books of the law. It's referring to the entire Old Testament. This was the Bible that Jesus had back then. This was the only Bible that Jesus had back then. It was considered the only authoritative revelation from God. So Jesus is very clear that he is not going to suspend that which God revealed. He's not going to consider as meaningless or as unimportant that which God revealed in the Old Testament. And therefore, we need to think and question if we should do that. If Jesus is not willing to do that, what about us? Now, again, before we look at the meaning of fulfillment, let's look at why Jesus had this attitude towards the Old Testament. Look at verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, 
not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, the Hebrew language had some very interesting letters that are literally like the English comma. As a matter of fact, in ancient Hebrew, some of the vowels, like O and U, were not real letters like we would think of them letters, but they were dots. And the way you would put those dots, you would have a different vowel sound. That was the Hebrew alphabet. So when Jesus says, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Friends, this, we get a picture that Jesus has a very, very high view of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying that from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, everything will be accomplished. Now, Jesus knew the writings of the law and the prophets were revealed from God, and anything that God says, it will be accomplished. Most likely, Jesus knew very well the, the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, who wrote in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. This is how the Old Testament saw the Word of God. And Jesus, as a good Jew who knew the Old Testament, would know the permanency, would know the, the ongoing importance of the Word of God as revealed in the Old Testament. So how can Jesus put an end or abolish the law and the prophets? He cannot. He will not. Instead, he says, I was sent into this world to accomplish it, to fulfill it. Now look at verse 19, another reason. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, some wonder, which commands is Jesus talking about here? Is it the Old Testament commands, or is it the commands that Jesus is going to preach and teach? I think it's probably both. This is talking about God's revelation, both the Old Testament and the commands Jesus is about to give. Now, some people look at this verse as a reason to say, See, some people do disobey some of the least of the commandments, and yet they still make it to heaven. Friends, to make this conclusion is the peak of folly. Because clearly at the end of the sermon, Jesus said that living a life of disobedience in the kingdom of heaven is to be like a man who built his house on a sand. And the destiny of that house, when the, when, the, when the trouble came, the destiny of the house is that that house crushed. Instead, Jesus here is not sort of giving a, a way out to those who want to disobey some of the commands. Jesus, what he's doing here is saying that ranking in the kingdom of heaven will be based not upon our service to God, but upon our, upon our obedience to his commands. Because the Word of God is, is revealed and is permanent, the people of the kingdom are called to follow this Word. And ranking in the kingdom of heaven will be based on our obedience. And this finally brings us to ask the question, so what is the meaning of fulfillment? At the very outset, I must say that the answer to this question has been greatly discussed and debated. Much ink has been used to clarify the answer. I want to point first at one clear wrong answer, then I'll be pointing to a few answers that are incomplete answers, and then finally what I think Scripture talks about when, when Jesus thinks and presents himself as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. First of all, a wrong answer, a fulfillment. Fulfillment does not mean putting aside. To fulfill the Old Testament 
does not mean to put aside the Old Testament. Jesus said it already. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Fulfillment can only confirm the truth of the law, not cast doubt upon it. It does not mean that we don't have to worry about the Old Testament. It, it, it means that we have to know it. We need to know what God revealed in the Old Testament. We need to know the requirements for perfection that God revealed in the Old Testament. Those still stand. Jesus affirmed the validity of the Old Testament, and he said that he came to fulfill it. So, fulfillment does not mean putting aside. Here are some meanings that are, that are true but are incomplete. Fulfillment does not even simply mean to keep the law. Now, this, in some sense, is a true answer. It's part of the answer, but it's not the complete answer. It's very easy for us to understand the language of fulfilling the law as simply obeying the law perfectly. And Jesus did that. In one sense, Jesus came to fulfill the law in the sense that he came to, to follow it and obey it. But fulfilling the law is not limited simply to keeping the regulations of the law. But rather, as we look at Jesus' life and the way he fulfilled the Old Testament, he fulfilled the Old Testament in his death. In other words, he fulfilled the Old Testament by dying the death caused by breaking the law, even though he didn't break it. So there's a sense in which we can talk about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament by living out the law and by dying according to the law as being a lawbreaker, even though he didn't break the law. But even then, even this is an incomplete answer. It's a true answer, but incomplete. Because there's a sense in which the fulfillment that Christ came to bring was not only the fulfillment of the regulations of the law, but the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, which includes the wisdom literature, which includes the historical books, and it includes also the prophetic books. In what way did Jesus fulfill the prophetic books? In what way did Jesus fulfill the, the wisdom literature? Let me just give you an example. If we looked to the crucifixion accounts, we would, and if we read those carefully, we would notice that oftentimes Jesus expresses his pain that he experienced on the cross by quoting David, by quoting the Psalms. And in doing so, Jesus fulfilled the Psalms of David. But not in any way that they were predictive or they were regulations that, oh, you have to do this. Not in that kind of fulfillment. But rather, in the sense of Jesus was reliving the pains of David, but to a much greater extent. David was, was preparing the way for us to think about what it means to be under the the judgment of God under the suffering of God, what it means for the enemies, uh, one's enemies to pursue, to pursue David. And, and David prepared the way of giving us categories, which then Jesus lived those experiences again to a much greater extent. Here's another example. When Jesus was being tempted by the devil in the desert to change the stones into bread, Jesus replied by using a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 in which Moses taught the Israelites, and he said, He, God, humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This, was, this is why God gave the manna in the, in the desert, in the Old Testament. And then Jesus, many centuries later, when he's in the desert, temp tempted by the devil, and, and asked to turn these stones into bread, Jesus uses exactly that verse, almost word for word. In other words, Jesus was reliving the history of Israel. But this time, unlike the Jews who failed and grumbled and fell and, and into temptation, Jesus lived out and won and overcame the temptations and the devil himself. In the very fact that Jesus was tempted by the serpent, it reminds us of, of the story of Adam and Eve in the garden who were tempted by the serpent. In, in all of this, Jesus is reliving the story of Adam and the story of Israel, but this time he does it without falling. 
In a similar way, the entire sacrificial system was looking forward to Christ. And when Christ gave the final breath on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament in the sense that the Old Testament events happened as a foreshadow of what would happen to Christ. Christ came to live the life of Adam. Christ came to live the life that Adam should have lived. Christ came to live the life that the nation of Israel should have lived. Christ came to, to die the death that Adam should have died. Christ came to die the, ad, the death that Israel should have experienced. So when we think about fulfillment in the Old Testament and for Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament, it's neither putting aside the Old Testament nor just keeping the law nor even just dying because of the law. Instead, it's a fulfillment, it's a broad category that includes many aspects, all of which have to do with the fact that Jesus came to relive the history of Israel and the history of Adam in order to bring to fruition all the hopes of the Old Testament. Everything that the Old Testament hoped for finds fulfillment in Jesus. The entire Old Testament was given to prepare us for understanding the life of Christ and the purpose for which it came. Therefore, the Old Testament stands in continuity with the work of Christ. And this has several applications for us. First, we should know the Old Testament and read it in order to find God's unchanging requirements and what Christ came to fulfill for us. The Old Testament is important. Second, we cannot truly understand the New Testament if we don't read the Old Testament. We cannot understand the ministry of Jesus in its fullness apart from understanding what He came to fulfill. So I hope and pray that one of the results of listening to the Sermon on the Mount is a renewed appreciation for the Old Testament in light of Christ. We will see often that Jesus corrects the Pharisees because they misunderstood the intent of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, no, 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 this is, what Jesus, this is what God intended from the beginning. Now, as a congregation, I want us to, the implication for us as a congregation is that I want us to be balanced in the way we, we preach and hear the word taught. We want to be preaching and, and learning not only from passages from the New Testament, but we want to do that from, the, from passages of the Old Testament also. Now, this is the first major point, the longest point that Jesus developed in the sermon to clarify people's wrong impression about the relationship that Jesus had to the Old Testament. The second thing that Jesus does in this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, or in this first point on the Sermon on the Mount, is he clarifies the standards of the kingdom of heaven. He clarifies the standards of the kingdom of heaven. In order to do this job of clarifying the standards of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus uses two comparisons. A positive comparison, what not to be like, and then a positive comparison, what to be like. And these comparisons you will find in verse 20 in our passage and in verse 48. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20, the negative comparison, the negative standard. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a negative comparison. And then the positive comparison, be perfect, therefore, as your, your heavenly Father is perfect. Now let's unpack the first comparison for a moment. What was the righteousness of the Pharisees? Before we, before we, we we're too quickly to respond to that, let me say the following. If you were to say to someone today, you are a Pharisee, that would be an insult. No questions asked. What would you be implying? That he is a hypocrite, that he says one thing and does another. But we have to remember that these, this definition, we have it today only after Jesus preached on it. But in the time of Jesus, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, to say to someone, you are a Pharisee, was the highest compliment you could give him. Why? Because the Pharisees were considered the religious leaders, the trusted leaders of the nation. To present yourself as a Pharisee was a very prestigious status. They were the spiritual guides of the people. They were very zealous for the law. 
they practiced the law in, in many details. For example, they even tithed from their agricultural produce. They prayed long prayers. They were very generous. They fasted a lot. They were viewed as the most committed religious people in their day. Moreover, it was the Pharisees that pleaded before the Roman government to, to try to keep certain religious rites. So they were viewed as, as the ones in charge to, to shape the cultural and political climate of Israel to the best degree they could. So when Jesus tells his disciples that unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven, this was a shocking statement. A regular Jew would have been extremely surprised. If a Pharisee cannot make it, then who can? What was it that the Pharisees missed? Well, in essence, the entire Sermon on the Mount who will answer that question, and we will look at that. But to satisfy our immediate curiosity, the Pharisees were so focused on a religion of the externals, of the good behavior, making sure you pose being a good religious man. And Jesus says, as good as that sounds, it is not enough. It is not enough. And notice, what is the right alternative, the positive comparison? If the Pharisees can't make it, then who can? The answer is verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard of comparison for being religious should have never been other people. And how often do we today still fall in that pattern? You think of yourself as being a little more religious than your, your other family member who, who stopped going to church or your your parents or your friends, and you think of yourself that you're a pretty good religious man or woman. How often it is for us that we tend to fall in this trap of comparing the goodness of our religion by comparing ourselves with other people who are worse than us. And we say, oh, I know I'm not perfect, but hey, you know what? There's a whole lot of other people that are worse than me. Friends, Jesus wants to clarify the standard of comparison for the kingdom of heaven. It should have never been human models. It should have never been other people, but God and God alone. This idea of be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect was introduced in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. And I know you don't read Leviticus as, as your bedtime reading. I know that. So here I'm just going to say it's Leviticus 19.2. God tells the people of Israel, and he tells Moses to say to his people of Israel, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now the demand of the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus came to announce, is that the standard which the Old Testament described is not made any lower in the New Testament. Perfection is still demanded. Perfection is still the goal. And these, this perfection is, is spoken to us from the mouth of Jesus. If we look at the rest of chapter 5 of the examples, we see that Jesus corrected people's impressions of what the Old Testament said. And rather than making the Old Testament laws more loose, they actually become harder. The commands of the kingdom of heaven are not easier in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. If anything, they are harder to follow. Why? Because God is not content with you simply putting off a show and a face of good behavior. He wants our nature to be changed. And that's more difficult. Friends, this has a few applications for us. This means that the distinction we often make between the Old Testament being harsh and the New Testament being more graceful is utterly misguided. We should never pose one over the other and try to, to have a preference of one testament over the other. The second application is, friends, this means that the distinction between law and grace 
should not be misunderstood. Yes, there are passages like Paul where, where he distinguishes between grace and law, but the way Jesus saw these, he, they functioned together. Now, the Old Testament people, I mean, the, the, the Israelites during the time of Jesus misunderstood the Old Testament, and they turned it into a legalistic system. So, yes, Paul will talk about the, or against that legalistic system. But the law and grace in Jesus, they are not exclusive. So, Jesus corrects our wrong impressions, both about his re relationship to the Old Testament, but also he corrects our impression of the relationship between law and grace. And then there's a third application for us. Christ came not only to fulfill the law himself, but so that through his death, he would fulfill the righteous requirements of the law in us. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Paul says, In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Friends, Jesus' demand for perfection still stands. And you may say, well, wow, I, I can't do that. I, I'm not able to do that. And the answer is yes, you're correct. You and I cannot do it on our own strength. But that's why God sent Christ to die on the cross, and that's why after His crucifixion and resurrection, God sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to live a new nature, a new life, so that we might start living our life on earth according to the demands of the kingdom of heaven. This means that, that the new nature that Christ brought to us enables us to follow the demands of the kingdom of God. Friends, Jesus did not come and die on the cross. He did not fulfill the law for us so that we might be excused from following the commands of the kingdom of heaven. Many people today find this explanation. If Christ died for us and in him all the requirements of the kingdom of heaven have been met, then why worry? Friends, that is a folly question. That's a foolish question to ask because Christ he came, to give us, he came not to give us a free pass so that God's laws would no longer apply to us, but rather He came to free us from our bondage to sin in order to enable us to follow the ways of God freely and joyfully from the bottom of our hearts. That's why in the very last words of the Gospel of Matthew, in the Great Commission, Jesus describes the work of making disciples and one of the last characteristics of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and what it means to make disciples of Jesus is not simply to convert others to Christ, not simply to evangelize, but to teach them to obey all that he commanded. Friends, true discipleship means following all that Christ commanded. And prior to Christ, those are not possible for us because we don't have the power on our own. But after Christ, after the coming of the Spirit, all these things are reality and possibilities for our lives. Yes, we will never be perfect in some sense of the word. But Christ came to redeem us, to free us, so that we, he can enable us to pursue that journey towards perfection. This means Christians are called to live morally not less than what the Old Testament demanded, but more than what the Old Testament demanded. The demands of Jesus, in some sense, are more difficult to follow. And yet, in other sense, they're easier to follow because he empowered us to do it. And he gave us the spirit so that we can do that. The correction of the kingdom, the demands of the kingdom in relationship to the Old Testament. Dear friends, as we will continue to, to unpack these truths in the next few weeks, I encourage us to be open to hear what the kingdom, what the king has to demand of us as citizens of the kingdom. And if you don't know this king, if he's not your Lord and Savior, if you don't have a personal relationship with this king, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. I do not want to give you the impression that by following certain rules, you will make it to heaven. None of us do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, all the hopes of the Old Testament are being accomplished. Father, we thank you that it is Jesus Christ, all the things that, that you hoped for Adam to accomplish, that the things that you hoped for Israel to accomplish, even though they failed, 
all of these things are now finally able to be done and lived in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that it is because of Jesus that all these hopes are now possible to be part of our lives. Father, I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to be open to understand these corrections, these relationships, and to see the wonderful way in which Jesus indeed is fulfilling your word. Father, we praise you that your word will accomplish everything you intended it to do and be. And we pray today that it would do so in our midst, in our lives, in our congregation. In the name of Jesus, I pray for his glory and honor. stand once more as we share a verse and a song and a commitment and a promise. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be 